hot summer night and the pod was burning. Welcome back to 96 Greers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg Lynn. <laughs> and I'm Patrick Rapol. <laughs> Wasn't expecting the meatloaf <laughs> reference. I love it. Well, uh, it was on my mind because uh, it, it is a um, pretty warm uh, yeah. August night yeah. uh, as we record. I'm glowing like the metal on the edge of the knife, personally. Yeah, yeah. We, we usually try to uh, uh, dampen the, the sound around us in our um, state-of-the-art um, recording studio slash kitchen but no we have to keep the fans on tonight but i i think i think the uh the sort of mechanical white noise that people might hear in the background is pretty appropriate uh, we have hobbled together this podcast like say a makeshift time machine of sorts exactly exactly yeah. so um and so you in the future are hearing us oh uh, yeah, even tying it in a little further um hearing us discuss uh aporia tonight uh which is a uh 2023 release directed by uh jared moshe but before we get into aporia um there was a related topic that we wanted to discuss on the podcast right and that is the currently ongoing uh wga and sag after strikes um uh currently day 101 of the wga being on strike that's right we just passed 100 days yeah um we they just passed 100 days we are not members no neither neither of us are members of either of those unions i am a member of a different union um that is not even a little bit related to the entertainment industry. Um, but because we are a podcast that discusses films made by WGA members, made by SAG-AFTRA members, we uh, had a discussion about um, should we continue doing the podcast? That's right. Uh, you know, or, or should we put it on hold in, in solidarity with the workers who are striking? There was a, a little bit of mixed message messaging coming out of Screen Actors Guild as far as people who aren't in the guild covering struck material, which in this case, Aporia is. It's a new film that is, you know, both the SAG and the Writers Guild of America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, people worked on this. Um, ultimately the, uh, the messaging is, uh, more guided towards influencers. Right. Which uh, we are not. We, if you are listening to this, you are of a, uh, a lucky, uh, select, uh, double digit, uh, club. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we thought our silence would not be felt so much as, we can't influence our way out of a wet paper bag. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> um, this uh, this podcast um, is a hobby. Uh, it's it's something that we do because we enjoy it. We make negative dollars uh, from it, and uh, yeah, we, we don't we don't have much of a reach. So uh, with, with that, and and also at this time, WGA SAG AFTRA are not calling for a strike. These are people who are, um, you know putting their foot down, refusing to work, refusing to, to keep their projects going um, to demand their rights. But one of the main ways those people are able to pay their bills, support their families, many of whom are not wealthy, um, is is residuals and royalties. That's right. Um, so they are not asking people to, to, boycott, to boycott at this time. Materials or, or certain streaming services or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so with, with that in mind, we felt that it would be appropriate for us to 
continue discussing, to continue watching movies, going to the theaters, continue discussing them and putting our thoughts on the internet. Right. Um, however, we did feel it was important to say that we are both workers yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are both pro labor um, we are not management no we are definitely not management <laughs> we can hardly manage um, our lives <laughs> <laughs> um and and as a, and as i said earlier um i am the member i'm a member of a union and every day i go to work i am i'm thankful for that um because being uh being organized and, and knowing that uh you your co-workers have your back and um if if it really comes down to it that um that you have um, that support and that, you know, management isn't holding 100% of the power is uh, a really important thing. And it's it's a game changer. So we just wanted to say that uh, we we stand in, in solidarity um, with WGA and with SAG-AFTRA. Absolutely. Um, and if you and if you we are not going to get into the, what they're demanding and what the right. studios are trying to get away right. with and everything. But if like you, you do like the slightest bit of research, you will find that what they're asking for is not merely just like reasonable, but also like, oh, this will protect me as a viewer from really shitty work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. There, I mean, they are, they are people who get paid to write, so they can communicate um, much better than than we can. Right. Um, what what their needs are and why they're on strike. Um, the official website that you can visit for more information is wgacontract2023.org. Um, that's a, a great place to get uh, updates uh, from the from the folks who are on strike. Um, you can also find a link there to support the Entertainment Community Fund. Um, you know, as I said, uh, not everyone who's a union member who is striking right now um, has the kind of clout to do other work that's not a struck project or not everyone has the you know, uh, the financial stability to, you know, continue while striking and, and be able to maintain their lives. So it's important to, you know, support those folks if you're, right. if you're financially able to. The Aaron Sorkins and the Tina Fey's of the world are like very few. And that's why you know right. them by name. A vast majority of the people in these unions don't make a living wage right. from, from the work that they do. Right. And which is part of why like striking is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this this uh, fund helps uh, people who are in financial emergencies, gives them uh, grants and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and if you can't, you know, maybe maybe look into other ways that, that you can um, support the strike or, you know, other other um, other organized labor organizations that maybe striking right now there might be some in in your backyard even yeah. if you're not in even if you're not in New York or Los Angeles so it's all what it's all linked what's what they're what it they're is, trying to do yeah. to the entertainment industry they are already trying to do to every industry so yeah yeah ab absolutely so um th that is that is our recommendation is that you you know support your fellow workers you're probably a worker yourself um and with that said um we will continue with our <laughs> hobby that nets us negative dollars. That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm proud to say I've been podcasting for over 10 years. I've only ever made negative dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, there, again, there are maybe podcasters out there who do make a living uh, from that. Uh, few and far between. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's okay though. That's okay. We can have our hobbies and our hobby tonight brings us to discuss Aporia, which is, uh, as we said, it's a 2023 release. Um, 
we're 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 getting a little fancy with this one. We're getting, it's true. Getting a little profesh with this one. Yeah. Um, we we got we got a preview screener. Yeah. Um, we're releasing this podcast on August sixteenth. At that time, Aporia will be in limited release in theaters. Um, but we, we, got, we got a little we got a little screener from the production company. So it is it is fun. <laughs> yeah, it is fun to get the official digital screener and see your full name on the screen. Yeah, yeah. During like, the so they know you don't pirate it. Okay. <laughs> Look, it was it was the first time for me. I, I for more importantly, this is uh the our first episode where we are covering a new Judy Greer movie. It's not technically the first movie with Judy Greer in the cast that has come out during the podcast. We right. missed the fact that she has a cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. So we went ahead uh, yeah. and... Well, and also, I, I really just didn't want to have to see Guardians of the yeah. Galaxy 2 to understand what's going on in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Yeah, no. We're, we're going to have to watch two Ant-Mans. That's, that's Ant- already such a, such a burden, these, yeah. these Ant-Men. For me, it is. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but our plan is going forward to try to cover new releases with Judy Greer in it as they come out and rearrange our schedule as we see fit. Right, right. So the last episode that we did, um, which got pushed back because we saw her in, at, uh, perform on stage at Steppenwolf. That's right. Um, so Carpe Key Man, diem. Yeah, so Key Man got pushed back. And then we said at the end of Key Man, we said, we're moving on to Grandma. And, and Grandma... <laughs> Sorry, Grandma, you got you got pushed back to September because we we got this chance to uh, to cover and and thank you to uh, to our friend Jim Laskowski who uh, put the bug in our ear about yeah. um, being able to get the screener. So yeah. we, we appreciate the help. Neither of us obviously had seen Aporia before. didn't didn't know it was a, a thing before before last month. And um, because it's a new movie, generally we discuss the whole movie that we cover on the podcast from the first scene to the last scene. We don't generally concern ourselves with spoilers. However, presumably the people listening to this podcast have not had a chance to see it yet. Right. Um, so we will put in the episode information, um, the time at which we start to discuss spoilers. This is a movie I think where if, if you're someone who, likes to be surprised likes not to know when the swerves are coming you you might you might want to kind of you know you know you know keep yourself ignorant of the whole plot of of the movie yeah um this is a time travel movie so i i think it does kind of rely on not knowing what's going to happen next that being said uh, I'll, why don't I go ahead and tell the good folks uh, who are listening what this movie's about? Please do. Sophie is a widow grieving the loss of her husband, Mal. Her tween daughter, Riley, is losing interest in school, and they are relying on help from Mal's best friend, Jabir. Seeing that Sophie and Riley are struggling without Mal, Jabir shows her a device that he has built that can kill someone in the past. Sophie and Jabir decide to use the device to kill Darby before he is able to drive drunk and kill Mal. Sophie and Jabir find themselves in a timeline where Mal is still alive, but soon find there are other effects of their decision that they had not considered. So, Patrick, uh, what did you think of Aporia? I liked it. I did too. I liked it. I, um... (laughs) It's a so there's there's a lot of when you enter the realm of time travel, it's it's not just a well worn road, it's several well worn roads with yeah. each road has 
several well-worn lanes. Yeah. And so it's yeah. very easy to watch a time travel movie. And this is not a traditional time travel movie. The thing that travels in time in this movie is a subatomic particle. Right. Um, right. It is it's not, not the people. people. Right. Um, yeah. So this isn't a time loop. This isn't, this isn't, we jump in a time machine. This isn't Rachel McAdams is sad because the person that she loves jumps through time. No, this is a gun that shoots a bullet into the past, which can affect your present. Yeah. Um, is the premise. And so I think there's a lot of uh, built-in assumptions about, okay, is it going to be this kind of thing? And then you're watching it, you're sort of second-guessing, you're like, oh, okay, it's going to do this. Oh, they're going to pull one of these. And the thing I really enjoyed about Aporia is that it's ultimately not like a super literal um, Christopher nolan like puzzle box kind of a thing that's like, What's really cool about those movies Mm -hmm. is that you think you're seeing one thing and then we flip it on you and then we flip it on you again. And then you go down this one corridor, but you didn't even realize it was a dead end and you turn around and now everything's changed. And like the the narrative tricks and everything is is usually um, how a lot of these kinds of movies work. This movie is very similar to something like Primer um, in feel. It's another uh, seminal low budget time travel movie. Um, that is very low fidelity in the way it depicts uh, the science of time travel and yeah. the people who discover it. Um, yeah. But that movie is very much interested in just how unbelievably um, confounding time travel is and how once you're inside of that mindset, it actually doesn't make sense anymore because mm-hmm. our linear brains can't perceive it. Like mm-hmm. Shane Carruth was an engineer turned filmmaker. Um, and so that's the kind of movie he's going to make. Aporia is interested in its characters. And that yeah. was the thing that like, there's not a whole lot of like amazing twists. I would say there's not a whole lot of like, Oh, that thing from the beginning is actually like, yeah, it's a pretty straightforward yeah. movie uh, of mm-hmm. its type, but it has really good characters and it is overwhelmingly interested in them yes. at the expense of everything else. Yeah. And that sort of made it set, set apart. And I, and I did enjoy that it's difficult to find a movie that is both suspenseful, but is also empathetic to its characters. I I think you mentioned Christopher Nolan. Um, I'm not a huge Nolan fan, but you know, uh, I went to see Oppenheimer, like everyone else in the world who was already there to see Barbie <laughs> um, and, and didn't have anything else to do because uh, they took the day off because it was their birthday. So relatable. It's getting less and less relatable <laughs> by the second. You know, um, and, then, and then I also had, had the chance to see uh, Inception on 70 millimeter, uh, which I'd never seen before because, again, not really into Nolan. Um, but, I, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying where the idea of of this is this is a a puzzle and this is like this mind expanding gimmick and it's just kind of interesting to sit back and go huh I wasn't expecting that and and to think about like like the structure of the movie and to think about um you know the scene that you saw you know 15 minutes ago and how does that play in, play into this it's it's a lot of fun to watch but I don't find myself caring about those characters ultimately uh, the like Leonardo DiCaprio man pain at the yeah. center of Inception is way less compelling than the little twisty turny puzzle boxy. I I I I think Leo is a fine actor. I I did not like his character in Inception. I found him so uninteresting. Yeah. Um. 
but that's not what you see the movie for. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, he's going to have a dead wife and, and you're not really going to know anything about his kids because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. But I mean, this this movie is all about family connection and and bereavement and mm-hmm. that and that kind of thing. Um, it made me think of After Yang, which was a 2021 movie by Kogonada, um, which is also about um, exploring bereavement and memory through the lens of uh, of like like a like a lo-fi science fiction. Um, it um, the aesthetic of the movie is quite is quite different from Aporia, but it is also about um, a family grieving loss and uh, how they're they're navigating uh, technology to um, how they're navigating how they're navigating their bereavement uh, through technology. Mm -hmm. But I also agree with what you said. This is very similar to a Shane Carruth movie where it's got a very lo-fi kind of feel with these like handheld digital cameras. Um, The, the technology in the movie is conceptually um, very imaginative, but it's look is very low budget. Um, I think what the what the director said that he was going for was what if the most powerful machine that existed was in a building that you wouldn't look at twice because we have we have this this guy Jabir who is a a rideshare driver um you know he he's an immigrant he's kind of struggling to make ends meet but he's also uh, a gifted physicist and he has created this machine from spare parts in the spare bedroom of his um of of his apartment in a modest uh working class neighborhood in los angeles there's literally a scene where he stops one of those scrap metal trucks uh out in front of his house and like starts digging around to see like what scrap he can find that can be useful like it's literally that low yeah i thought that was a really good touch um as he uh, as he's enhancing his uh time machine Mm -hmm. um so i want i ended up watching uh Jared Moshe's two previous features. Uh-huh. He's made. He's written and directed two films before this. They're both westerns. The first one's called Burden of a Dead Man, and the second is called uh, The Ballad of Lefty Brown. I want to say. Uh huh. Um, I might get getting the name wrong, but no, it, I, no, I think I think that's it because I, I was I came in when you were watching it, so I'll just I'll just say that again. Okay. Um, the first one is called Burden of a Dead Man, and then the second one is called The Ballad of Lefty Brown, and. The thing, even though they are westerns, uh, which is you might think is the polar opposite genre of sci-fi, uh-huh. they actually feel similar to this in that they are overwhelmingly concerned with character relationships, and they all have this like very melancholy feel and tone to them, uh-huh. and they are all concerned about violence and justice and like what you owe to another person and when you stop owing that person and mm. things and like family ties and all of these things that uh, watching them and then watching Aporia, it was like, oh, okay, so mm-hmm. this guy has a thing or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And it sort of recontextualizes Aporia in that I think there is a lot about Aporia that is very easy to pick holes in. And some mm-hmm. of that is like the inherent nature of time travel movies. It's like, yeah, time travel doesn't make sense. It's, right. kind of, it's like impossible. So when you start going like, but why would the machine do this? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, cause it's a, cause it's a device to tell a story. That's yeah. why. Yeah. <laughs> cause, cause it's, cause it's not real. It's there. So you can uh, create an interesting scenario for characters. I agree. I agree with what you're saying where you wouldn't think about sci-fi and Westerns as being similar 
at all but Mm -hmm. so much of the of the tension and the drama around both of those genres is people in survival situations making really difficult ethical choices you know you have movies like the man who shot liberty valance or high noon you know where Mm -hmm. you know people are trying oxbow incident yeah 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 where, where people are trying to decide you know well you know what is what is a human life worth and and what is the what is the safety of the community worth i mean of, of course this being the the safety of white settlers um but i mean and, and, but then you get a movie like like prey mm-hmm. where which is a you know a, a western the the time period the location but it's about um an indigenous person versus uh, a completely different kind of colonizer where where there is that that high tech there is the alien invader and just the the parallel between um between european invaders and the the predator um invading the space um is you know unmistakable right um you know so, so again just kind of going back to uh there both of these genres often coming to you know people in survival situations people in alone or in small communities where they where there's not a lot to fall back on for help and and having to make these really difficult decisions and a lot of the tension and the drama kind of boiling down to that and i think um aporia takes place in a pretty tight-knit community you know um mal and sophie's child riley you know attends a school the family seems to be well connected with the school community pretty well connected with sophie's job so you see that you know these are relatable people with relatable lives but um because this technology that that jabir has created is so fantastic it it really comes down to um this unbearable weight of of moral responsibility and how do we use this device and what do we do with it and when is it appropriate um to to just them and and the film for all of its empathy starts to feel really lonely really quickly um which i i think is why it got so suspenseful for for me um i mean i I hear what you're saying where it's not it's not it's not an inception style twist and turn you know it's it's not like that but i i the last act i i was kind of digging my nails into my palms kind of you know what are they going to do what's going to happen how are they well it's it's less like how are they going to solve this one than like how are they going to like bear this yeah, <laughs> this yeah. world that they have created for themselves? Yeah, yeah, because even this, this situation. In Moshe's director statement for the movie, he specifically mentions uh, Alex Garland's Ex Machina um as sort of a, a touchstone for what he was trying to do, and I found that movie to be very similar in my reaction where I was just thinking about like like the sort of gray ethics of the situation and sort of thinking to myself like, well, who am I rooting for in this situation? And when they make the decisions that they make, am I still rooting for them? And do I like, am I able to empathize with what they're doing or am I judging them? And what would I do in that situation? And, and why am I thinking that way? So um, while I was having a, certainly a much more emotional reaction to Aporia than I did to Ex Machina, um, I still found myself in, in that very sort of um, analytical headspace uh i had to look up what the word aporia means sure um aporia is a rhetorical device um where 
the speaker expresses doubt or uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the sort of example I thought of is, you know, I'm just a simple country lawyer and I don't understand the big city ways. That, that kind of seems like an example of aporia. But this movie is very much about doubt and uncertainty. It is, even though, you know, like you said, you can kind of think of the potential logical holes that the scenario leaves, but it is a situation where you can kill someone in the past and it's completely traceless. What would you do with that? We can just say that this movie does not get political. <laughs> no, no, it, it, this, it doesn't. This movie wisely decides that, like, to go out into the weeds of the actual, like, converse, philosophical conversation of how does one do the most good with a yeah. gun that shoots into the past, yeah. you, one would have to talk about the real world and real world damage that real world mm-hmm. figures did into it. And then all of a sudden you are no longer talking about about a movie about a family yeah, yeah <laughs> so like this sure. movie this movie is not about that this movie is not would you kill baby hitler <laughs> that, that's true and, and and part of part of the the rules of the device is that um because they are just you know folks trying to to make a living with their day jobs they can only um generate so much power and they can only go back less than a decade right um so you you couldn't kill baby hitler um but you couldn't kill baby hitler you you couldn't kill baby I have Hitler. a plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. Well, that's a different podcast. Um. I just in my head just now I pictured a 1950s sitcom called You Couldn't Kill Baby <laughs> Hitler with an exclamation point. <laughs> and it's about like a failed like he used to be a member of like a secret <laughs> troop. Uh-huh. A secret, a secret time traveling like like OSS. Well, it's the '50s, so he literally can be a World War II veteran who right. failed to kill Hitler, but on baby Hitler. But on it in in the sort of bourgeois dinner conversations where uh, they talk about whether or not they would kill baby Hitler, his wife, oh, his wife, always <laughs> has to bring up that he failed to kill real Hitler. <laughs> and and the, the name of the show is "You Couldn't Kill Baby Hitler." <laughs> Or maybe it should just be called You Couldn't Kill Hitler, comma, baby. <laughs> and his catchphrase is, shut your trap, Gertrude. And then the audience just goes wild. They love it. They love the threat of domestic violence in, in 50 sitcoms. Um, we were talking about a movie at some yes, point. Yeah, yeah, I, I seem to, I seem to vaguely remember that. Yeah, so, so I, I, I agree with you. It doesn't get political because, of course, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, oh, who would, who in the last eight years would I kill? Right. <laughs> but, um, but the, but it does get into um, some ethical questions. Like they talk about, you know, um, should, um, should we use this device on someone who hasn't murdered anyone, but who has ruined people's lives should we use this device on someone who has murdered people but we don't have a personal connection to them and then of course sophie wonders well i did get my husband back because we killed the man who killed him but what did the loss of that man mean to the people in his life Mm -hmm. and then that opens a whole can of worms there is a there is actually a more um cogent uh connection this movie has to oppenheimer Mm -hmm. which is this is about the creation of a weapon and the realization that once you have a weapon you are going to use that weapon yeah (laughs) and then and then suddenly the the uh 
the moral weight of creating that weapon is upon you because you're the one who made it exist in the world when it did not previously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what resonated in this movie for me is the sort of constant moral uncertainty, the sort, the the thought of I'm going to make the best decision that I can given the circumstances, but I don't know what effect it's going to have. You have no way of knowing what your decisions are going to bring about in the future. For me, the reason this movie really works is that it really refuses to ever let you leave the head of the real people. And not like real people as in this is a documentary, but real people in that their stakes are very relatable. Yeah. And what they are going through and what drives what they do. Yeah. Like, for example... You learn that uh, Malcolm only has one use of one of his arms, right. and you don't exactly know why for a while until during a dinner conversation, someone asks him about it, and he explains that he used to work at Lockheed Martin, and that someone he works with um, made a mistake and didn't fasten something correctly, and then when they went to test something, it mm-hmm. ended up... Uh, in an accident where he had brain damage and right. he could no longer operate one of his arms. Right. So, um, so he can't continue working as an engineer. Um, and I think I, and what I really love about the device at the center of this movie is this is important to him, not because like Malcolm really wants to build a gun that shoots into the past. Malcolm really wants to feel of value. Yeah. He is a stay at home father and you, when you first see encounter that in a movie, a lot of movies use a father having a great relationship with a child as like just shorthand, be like, this one's a real one. This guy's yeah. great. Yeah. We love him. And like that's an unambiguously wonderful thing mm-hmm. that he has such a good relationship with his child. Mm-hmm. And the more you learn about him, the more you realize like stay at home father is where he landed after an accident yeah. and it's not where he wants to be. Right. And in fact, his really good relationship with their daughter, Riley might just be a byproduct of thwarted dreams. And in an, in his ideal world, he might not actually be even as close to Riley cause he will have a, he would have a full career where he gets to yeah. be the scientist. Yeah. And he- so when he builds this machine that gives him purpose and sense, but he's still like, an engineer from Lockheed Martin and it's, and like it's, they try to build a time machine and I like that just their natural inclination because Malcolm is part of it. It's just like, I built a fucking gun. (laughs) (laughs) I learned, I work for an arms company and I built an arm. And it's it's the, it's the same thing um, with, with Jabir who is, they never say in the movie what country he's from if, if I'm, if I recall correctly, but the 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 actor is from Iran. Yeah. Payman Mahdi is Iranian American. So he he was born in America, but he's Iranian. And Uh I, I did imagine that he was speaking of Iran. Yeah, yeah, and, um, and and he's been in some Iranian movies, like you said. He's he's in uh, Separation, which is uh, amazing in a Separation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so so it's the same thing with him because because he talks about how uh, he moved to America after um, he lost his family to an oppressive political regime, and I think it's the same kind of thing for people who who moved to another country where you know in in his own country he was working as a physicist, um, but now he's he's a rideshare driver and he's just sort of he's finding himself in the situation and he's doing what he can, but he, you know, also just kind of took this big, big risk and upended his life. And it's not what he 
was planning for himself. It's not, it's not what he, what he was hoping. And he's also finding in himself in the situation. Uh, the reason that he starts to build the machine is because he wants to kill the man who turned his family over to the government. Um, so restoring his family and restoring, um, what's important, to, what's important to him and the life that he lost is, uh, the 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 whole catalyst for the story that this movie brings us um he has he has his uh his conspiracy uh cork board up with pictures of his family and and information about about this this man who betrayed them and um you know so even though he is a a supporting character it, it is um his personal drive that has this impact on his friends. And and then you go to Judy Greer uh, playing Sophie. Uh-huh. And Judy Greer, by the way, we usually have to wait a while before we can right. mention her, but she's the lead of this. She's the lead, baby. It's a, there's, there's, it's a three-handed, it's definitely... She's uh, on the Sophie, poster and everything. Yeah, Sophie, Malcolm, and Jabir are like the three people this movie is about. But, um, but Judy Greer is, I would say, the lead yeah, for of sure. the film. For sure. So even her, when she brings uh, her husband back, by killing the drunk driver who who killed him, mm-hmm. um, obviously after going through like ten months of grief and agony and being disconnected from her daughter mm-hmm. and her daughter just not talking to her at right. all, right? And is and failing out of school. All of those and... scenes, by the way, are just like so heartbreaking. When yeah. she when she uh, when they come when it cuts back from the bowling alley party and uh-huh. all of the presents are still unopened and oh, she's just like yeah. sobbing at the kitchen table. Yeah. It's like that stuff, that stuff is so good. It's, it's like so brutal and it's, and it really is just like, these are the stakes. We are really yeah. going to make you sit in the grief Yeah, before we, we're not just going to say, well, of course anyone would want to bring their dead husband back. We're yeah. really setting up the real like human three dimensional stakes yeah. of, of this. When Malcolm comes back, She's obviously thrilled and she's making him breakfast mm-hmm. and she's just being really affectionate and she's doing all the things that he wants to do. And and she and he instantly is like, something is wrong. Yeah. Something is off. And it is it says something fascinating about their relationship that we never really see pre the machine. Mm-hmm. We see one scene of them sort of cuddling on a couch and, yeah. and sweet talking each other. Yeah. Then there's a really hard cut to after the accident, he's been mm-hmm. gone 10 months. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really know what their relationship was like, but we get enough of a feel from how he reacts to her being nice that like, maybe she actually was not like, not, a, not in, I'm not saying she was a bad wife or mother in that she was like doing a bad job, but mm-hmm. like maybe being the, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Malcolm got disability when, or, or yeah, some yeah, sort assume. of, um, <laughs> it, it was funny. It's funny. It's, we're talking about like the, um, the, the, the plot holes around, uh, the, the use of the use of the time machine and the, and the logical issues that come up with that. The way my brain works is I'm sitting here like, why haven't they sued the fuck out of Lockheed Martin? Why don't they have millions of dollars I, they, in settlement? I, they might not have millions of dollars, but they might. But he might have signed something, or he might have gotten like some severance or something. Right. But like, but you do get the feeling that they're not like they're not living it up. They're not. They don't have right. a big house or whatever. They right. have. A, they live pretty modestly. They live. Yeah. They have a modest life. She is a nurse. She is probably mm-hmm. at this point the main breadwinner. Yeah. Like. Uh, you get the feeling that like she doesn't have a close relationship with her daughter because she's always tired when she gets home from yeah. work and she doesn't have, uh, you know, and she maybe f- feels a little like anxious 
about uh, how close her husband is with their child yeah. and how she doesn't have that relationship. There might be I, some sub- level of jealousy there that yeah, is fascinating. And, and, and I think it's important to point out that um, Riley and Mal's close relationship, a huge basis for that is their shared love of science right. and their shared love of physics. Right. Uh, so I, I think kind of going back to what you were saying where, um, where Mal has this sort of you know, d- deferred life. Everything in the movie suggests that he is a, a caring and supportive father yeah, and yeah. that his losses is felt deeply. But um, the, the, just the fact that, uh, that they are both, you know, big science nerds and they can, and that they can relate over this and he can kind of live vicariously uh, maybe a little bit through Riley and, and her love of rockets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, that, that does add a, a special level to their relationship that, that we don't see uh, between, between Sophie and Riley. I mean, I mean, I think just the fact that, that Riley is a 12 year old and, you know, she has like a typical 12 year old relationship with Sophie, but she's very close with Mal at this yeah. age where it's just like, drop me off a block from school. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Every Well, that's I mean, that's the thing about this movie that really works when you go. Can you really shoot a subatomic particle from space and yeah. hit someone based on an Instagram photo? <laughs> like you're going to you're going to you're going to cinema sins it. You're going to go. This movie is ridiculous. Yeah. But like it, when if you get locked into the emotional journey of the character. You yeah. will find that is actually really richly realized. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I, I love the character of Malcolm as someone who at some point was really going to be somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was really like he was the, he you get the sense from the way he talks about the accident that he was like this like rising star. And he yeah. has this whole life that has gone from him. And now not only is he not that like he has lost use of one arm and mm-hmm. obviously like so many disabled people, he has worked around it. He has yeah. a full life. He is yeah. totally capable of dressing himself and yeah. cooking breakfast and, t- and driving and yeah. all that sort of stuff. But he's also uh, at one point when he is at dinner and someone some maybe somewhat rudely asks him about uh, how he cooked dinner with only one arm or whatever, mm-hmm. there is this feeling of like, he's also someone who people stop at the grocery store and go, oh, do you need help? Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. Like the stuff that disabled people do go through the sort of babying <laughs> yeah. uh, sort of uh, infantilization that happens. There is something in his, in the character's life that is like, Every single time someone tells him what a great dad he is, it's kind of like a little dig at like, this is what you aren't. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And like, that is the kind of thing. Those are the kind of reveals that happen Uh as the movie goes on. It's less that like, oh, that video we were watching in the beginning, we thought it was in the past, but it's in the future, anything like that. It's more like, oh, when she brings him back by changing the past Mm -hmm. and they have this like, unbelievably blissful marriage and Uh sunny life and they're making love and they're going to see shooting stars and everything like that is actually an indication of something wrong it is not a and then they lived happily ever after and in fact the reason the plot keeps going is because he senses like this is not how things were (laughs) yeah i mean i mean i i think i think that this is probably a, a a family who is you know for all intents and purposes loving and functional but they're just struggling under capitalism. I mean, I know you said it's not, it's not a political film and, and it's not, but I mean, that's just kind of my read on it. Where right, right, right. My thought is where, where he's a little confused that she's making breakfast and that she's, you know, coming home and she, and she's chipper Judy Greer. She's yeah. not, she's not like, you know, sad Judy Greer. Um, I mean, my thought was that, you know, I, I also work in a helping profession and it, if I was making you breakfast, 
I would know something was wrong. Yeah, yeah. If if I if I came home and you said, "How was your day?" and I said, "I'm so happy to see you." <laughs> I would be really I would go, "Oh, Reg took an edible on the drive home." Pretty That's not that's not very responsible, Reg, but I'm glad you got home safely, presumably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cuz it's cuz it's like like, "Oh, you're doing a hard job and it's draining." And yeah. and and I don't even have to take care of anything more complex than than a than a, a, a a snake plant. So, <laughs> um, so for I've, I, so another thing that this movie brought up for me is there is a Richard Matheson story from 1970 called Button Button uh-huh. that was then adapted into a maybe the only famous episode of the Twilight Zone from the 80s run of the Twilight Zone called Button Button. Um, it's a very simple premise. It was then later again the uh, Richard Kelly who directed Donnie Darko and Southland Tales in 2009. He did a movie called The Box with Cameron Diaz. That was the same story. Basically, guy shows up at your house with a box and a button. Says you press that button, someone you don't know will die, and then you will receive two hundred thousand dollars. And you have a day to decide if you press it or not. And when I take it away, I go and I give it to someone who you don't know. So therefore, like at some point, the target is going to be painted on you, and uh-huh. you better hope that whoever has the box in that moment de- decides not to kill you mm-hmm. to to better themselves, despite the fact that they don't see the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking, obviously, like this is a very Twilight Zoney kind of a premise, mm-hmm. and I and I've actually been watching a lot of Twilight Zone, and a, the thing about the Twilight Zone is there's a lot of episodes that are actually kind of crummy, like they're just like nah, that's yeah. not a really well told story, yeah. but they are built around a single image of existential terror that is so vivid and amazing Mm. that it totally justifies the 30 minutes and you're like all of that was dopey but it had that one moment where the guy's doppelganger was giggling as he was running away from him and you have this man in a suit in this urban environment screaming into the void and you're like my god post-war you know identity crisis yeah all that stuff it's like this is why the twilight zone is the twilight zone um this movie has like half a dozen really powerful just moments of existential crisis that are the unintended consequences of using this machine. Mm -hmm. And I think we can talk about, without spoiling where the movie goes, we can talk about one of the premises of the machine, Mm -hmm. which is if you are in the room using the machine, when you change the past, you don't know what has changed Mm-hmm. Because you are observing. It's a, it's like another like hand wavy, like yeah, the science yeah. doesn't make any sense, but that's fine. It's just, this is how the story works. It's like, you, you don't know what happened in the new timeline. Right. You have, if you say you go, you kill someone nine months ago mm-hmm. and there are the, the following nine months after his death are different than if he had lived. Right. But your memory is of the nine months where he had lived. Right. Um. So you go out and you realize, like, wait a second, this this has changed, that has changed, my husband's still alive, and because he has always been alive, he doesn't realize that I mm-hmm. have a memory of him being dead for 10 months. I also don't have a memory of the past 10 months that we were together. Yeah. Um, there is, like, a moment early on in this movie, after they first use the machine and they bring back Malcolm, where she's, like, looking through her phone... And she just sees like a little video that she took of the family together that she does not recognize. Yeah. And it's like her and she's laughing and it's like the whole family's having a good time. And suddenly it's like, it, it is that feeling of like, oh my God, a doppelganger. It's like there's someone mm. who has taken, there's someone who is not me uh-huh. who had this whole other life that I am not a part of because yeah. that wasn't my timeline. My yeah. time, I come from the previous timeline yeah. before it was altered. Yeah. And like throughout the movie, there are moments like that that are just like 
that moment of her, like Malcolm is asleep and she's staying up in the bedroom, like him not knowing what she has done to save him. Mm -hmm. She hasn't told him. And like, her just like having this secret and like looking on her phone and seeing that and seeing memories that she has no idea what they are. Yeah. Like, holy cow. Like that is like really powerful. And that is the stuff for me much more than the moral quandary of, is it good? Is it bad? Mm -hmm. What's the good way to use it? Like Mm -hmm. to me, the thing that this movie does really well is the characters and like those moments of total existential panic. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I, I, that came up for me as well. And um, to talk about how the how I experienced that with this movie, we are going to have to get into spoilers. So spoiler alert warning is officially on. No holds barred. We're going to talk about anything we want in this movie. So in the beginning of this movie, Mal is dead and he was struck by a drunk driver walking through, while he was walking through an intersection. Um, and we see that uh, that Sophie is uh, in a court battle with uh, this man whose name we learn is Darby Brinkley. Um, so, you know, Darby's in court, but he's he's not, you know, he hasn't he hasn't had any kind of um, he hasn't been charged with anything yet. And she's very frustrated by this. Um and that's one of the reasons that that she, you know, not only to bring Mal back, but also to get a sense of justice. And kind of what pushes her over the edge is that she is lightly stalking Darby and she sees him show up at his home and he's drunk and his wife kicks him out. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and I'm watching this. And, and of course, you know, being being a, a frequent movie watcher and sort of being someone who kind of cotton to uh, movie shorthand, I, I'm just watching this and I'm thinking, oh, he's an asshole. What a jerk. The, like, the filmmaker is giving us permission to root for his death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I even I even wrote in my notes, I wrote, also, this Darby Brinkley is a jerk who's still drinking. <laughs> <laughs> judge, judge, judge. When, when she and Jabir make the decision to kill Darby, you're just like, good for you. Slow clap for you, Judy Greer. But... Then she starts to feel guilty and then she she tracks down his wife and she, and she lies to this woman and she's like, oh, hey, girl, how's life as a widow? <laughs> and and she finds out that um, that that uh, that his his widow and his child are struggling and that he was also a good dad and and his daughter you know and his daughter's grieving his loss and 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 financially they're having difficulty and his daughter uh was dealing with with a health issue and it's just this whole thing where she's she just starts to realize like oh this was uh this was a human being this was someone who had people who loved him and cared about him even if he you know made this massive mistake that destroyed my life he's not you know, he's he's not evil incarnate. My perception of him as a human being is entirely based on the very worst moments of his life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, so kind of coming back around to like, like, oh my God, there's this person in my life who I don't know them, and and yet they had this big effect on me. It's it's exactly like that, where it's just like you know, anyone who has that big of an effect on you you know, you're just going to see them in that one moment and you're just going to know them in the way that they affect you. And it is so hard to remember that they've had an entire life and that they are uh, a a complex person, you know, especially when it's something like 
one decision and it's one outcome, no matter how poor the decision and no matter how awful the outcome, it's not an entire person's life. And so having that, that inability to know someone's life, um, can, can, when you realize that, that that can feel as big and as horrifying as the realization of, oh, I don't know my own life. I don't know the last eight months of what has become my own life. You know, that, that, that's where the existential kind of terror kind of came in for me. Um, and I was so caught by, um, the character's name, Darby Brinkley. What it made me think of was in in LA Confidential, uh, the noir, the neo-noir movie, Guy Pierce's character, who is a cop, uh, talks about how when he was a kid, he created this fictional character in his mind called Rolo Tomasi. And Rolo Tomasi uh, was to him the personification of all criminal evil. And the name Darby Brinkley kind of made me think of that, where it it just felt like this name that is like a like like a symbol for something so so big and unknowable and scary who 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 among us have has has met a good darby Reese darby Oh, Reese Darby. You he met seems, him? Oh, you met Reese Darby. I have a parasocial relationship <laughs> with Reese Darby on his TikTok. <laughs> okay. He threw a birthday party for his dog. How bad can he be? That's true. Reese Darby <laughs> threw a birthday party for his dog. <laughs> so not all Darbies. Not all Darbies. <laughs> Fair. I, I will say, I think nitpicking the science mm-hmm. is one thing. Mm-hmm. I think... You have to accept time travel movies on the terms they give you. Uh-huh. Uh, and if if they are not focusing on the thing that you want them to focus on, then that's probably indicative that the thing you want them to focus on is not important to them. And you should mm-hmm. just, like, move on or whatever. Uh-huh. The stakes, as the stakes increase towards the end of the movie, uh-huh. it gets to the point where it's like, the movie actually kind of cheats to hide the fact that what the characters are doing is so ridiculously dumb. Yeah. They don't give you all the information. At a certain point, they decide, um, okay, so Darby Brinkley dies. Right. And unfortunately, his family was going through a lot of financial crisis. Yeah. um, And their house gets foreclosed on as a result of his death. Yeah. His wife is now working multiple jobs, trying to make ends meet. She has a daughter with MS, and that is very, very expensive in America where where medical bills are out of control. Yeah. Um, They try to figure out how do we use this gun that shoots into the past to fix her financial situation. Yeah. How do we make it up to her? We yeah. don't have all, it's not like we can go, oh, we found this $20,000 for you. We don't have $20,000. Like just because we have this unbelievable machine doesn't mean we have the ability to grant wishes or anything. Yeah. So they have to look at, you know, when you have a hammer, all problems start to look like a nail. Mm-hmm. Um, they go, how do we fix their lives using this gun that shoots into the past? They go, oh, well, you know what? She was actually a really successful baker and she lost all of her money in a Ponzi scheme. They call, they say the Arizona's Bernie Madoff Yeah, um, is this guy who ran off with all of her money and is the reason why she no longer owns her own bakery. And if that guy never, if that never happened, and he, by the way, he died in jail. So it's like, you know, yeah. it's fine. If that never happened, then she would still have her bakery. And, you know, even without her husband, she'd have a successful bakery mm-hmm. and she'd find a way. Okay, well, let's do that. What they don't say in that, they sort of reference it a little bit, but they don't flat out say how long ago they would have to aim that gun. 
They talk about the yeah. range of the gun. Yeah, yeah. They, they talk say about, they say five if, years, and then they say, "Well, we we tooled around, and now it's eight years." Okay, and then they say we can double eight years because because Riley's eleven. Yeah. So they go further than eight years or whatever. Yeah. Number one, you have a child, and you are basically rewriting their entire life because you decide to be in the room with the time machine gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, well, because they... I can't because... think of anyone whose life is static enough that they could walk into a new life that was their past 11 years re-rolled and, like, have no problem. That is in That is unhinged. Absolutely insane. And the only reason they don't tell you they're doing it is because of the reveal that their child is no longer their child. Riley is... Their child's completely different <laughs> because it turns out... <laughs> conception is a dice roll and there are a lot of sperm competing with one egg and that's and that's actually an amazing sequence all of that stuff oh with God. the child with the child but like yeah. the way you get there is by having characters act so ridiculous that i am like what why couldn't they at least say this is really going to mess up all of our lives we need to draw straws or something besides who's in the room with this because the rest of us need to remember the past i i think that the reason that that the characters make the decision that, that Mal and Sophie and Jabir make the decision to stay in the room is because they are so focused on will making these changes mean that Mal blinks out of existence. And that is just like a laser focus for them where I, I guess, that, you know, they're both still somewhat traumatized from his loss. And they're like, you know, buddy, we don't want to lose you again. You know, you're my husband, you're my best friend. We can't lose you again. And that is, it, they, they just have these blinders on because of that. Um, but they're also saying, you know, he, this guy, you know, he died in, he died in prison. He lived in Arizona. He didn't have any effects on our life. Like, like they, they just don't, they don't think that this guy who was an embezzler, but also they had never heard of him and they had to do like this, this, this like internet rabbit hole of research to even find out who he was. They say there's no possible way. So I, I can kind of understand but why they're still we've already established how upsetting it is to step into a life that isn't quite yours because right. there's a stretch of time that isn't yours anymore. Right. The other really wonderful existential dread moment is she shows up to work and all of a sudden her shift is now um, hospice care. Yeah, uh, yeah. And number one, like, that's not something you want to accidentally stumble into. No. That's a really major decision to work hospice yeah. as a nurse. And the fact that she's just like, I have to leave all these patients I have a close connection to, go all these other patients who may have a close connection to me, but I don't know who they are. Yeah. And suddenly my job just got way, way worse. Like that is a decision that you understand how two characters could make. But like that is really upsetting. That is like yeah. that's a really intense moment in mm -hmm. that movie. Mm -hmm. you, we've mm -hmm. already established the stakes of just having that past switched on you mm -hmm. is in, is so intense. Yeah, yeah. The idea of instead of that being ten months, being eleven years or longer, unhinged. It is just like beyond the pale. It that is the point where I did have to go like okay, this movie isn't going to make sense on that level too. Not just that the science doesn't make sense, but the previously established stakes that inform how the characters uh -huh. act also are being ignored. Well, I guess it's, it's like, it's like, the the button right because because the, the 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 stinger in the button is oh someone might kill me right but also the the ethical question of the button is 
even if it's someone I don't know, will they still have an impact on my life? Because th- th- that is, those characters are pushing the button. They're, they're, they're saying, we don't, we didn't know who this guy was. We didn't know him from Adam. This was completely not part of our right. lives. If we push the button, it's not going to change a goddamn thing. They're, they're just, they're just but they, but so... If, but if this was the second time they pushed the button and the first time they pushed the button, they had, they did change a whole lot about their lives that they didn't expect. Right. They might have, that, they, that might factor into their decision making the second time they press the button. Well, well yeah, but the first, but the first time they do it, it's because they are rewriting, they're, they're writing their, their husband and father of their child and best friend back into their, la- the last eight Right. months of their life right. or, or however long so whatever you know, someone, changes. Who, someone who was in their life every day someone who had an immediate material impact on how they live their daily life so th- yeah so, so so that that that's going to be way different i mean i mean if if you if you were told like oh some some guy who who's in like who, who's in like 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 a like a prison in arizona is going to die if you push this button you so know. I think this actually might be less about this being flat out no way to justify it. I I think it's ridiculous, but like <laughs> I think part of why it stuck out to me so much uh-huh. might just be the it's doing the thing that a thought provoking science fiction does, which is it, it reveals your own biases yeah. and philosophies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For and sure. like I am an atheist who believes that we are all just like in a chaotic universe and we are all just tumbling around and everything in everything is pure chance all of the time. And I believe it's it's all a big cosmic web, man. Yeah. And, and like, and, and like it is a total fluke accident that anything good ever happens. Um, and you, and you are constantly flipping a million coins at all times. And at any point that, that was actually one of the things that that I, that I found very moving at the first part of the movie Unfortunately, part of the the way the movie works is they have to establish the stakes that you die if this one specific drunk driver hits you. You don't die if that one specific drunk driver doesn't hit you. Right. What they don't say is literally you are flipping a coin as, as to any one of us will die. Because yeah. all of us could potentially be hit by drunk drivers if, if any little moment of our life changes yeah. and we happen to step out in the street at a different time than yeah. we would. Yeah. Like, that was actually something I was thinking about. Like, wow, yeah, random chance. Like, we really are powerless. And, and like, we are constantly flipping coins about being creamed by drunk drivers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in a cosmic yeah. And, sense. Yeah, and, and, just be, and, and just because you you weren't creamed by a drunk driver doesn't mean that you, you don't have deep thre- vein thrombosis and you're going to, you know... Right. Whatever. So my, my point is, like... I when I see this, I'm like, well, I mean, part of the way these movies work, this isn't a failure on my part. This is the way the movie works. It is it invites the audience to 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 wonder about it and go, yeah. well, what would you do? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, my decision making process, my number one thing would be, every time we hit that we hit that button and we use this device, there's like a chance that the whole world won't be here because God knows what could yeah. have happened and didn't happen, and like butterfly flapping its wings. Like in my mind, I'm like. We used it once and it didn't cause California to split off from America and sink into the ocean. Right. That was a miracle. Let's not use it again. So, but like, yeah. my first thought, front of mind always is what would having the last 10 years of my life yanked away from me and changed be? And there is a little bit of like a bendiness to it where it's like, whatever the previous 10 years of life, if we are all in this room using this machine, 
like the the hand of fate has to sort of like twist it into a place where we uh-huh. end up in this room using this machine because mm-hmm. we are in this room using this machine. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like one of those things where it's like that's not the stuff I want to criticize. Mm-hmm. The decision making is a little bit mm-hmm. like, especially because to me the most powerful moments of the movie are that like doppelganger identity crisis existential dread uh-huh, uh-huh. of feeling like you stepped into someone's shoes that aren't yours. Yeah. yeah. Um, even, even to the extent that Malcolm is like, who, who are you and what have you done with my wife? When right. Judy Greer's being Saying nice it to him. jokingly, but still it's, it's, it's the realest thing that's happening so in that me, moment. Like, up to that moment. That's like, that's what this movie's about. Uh-huh. And I would be yelling at this, I would be yelling at this at the screen way earlier if they had the if they had the uh, guts to say how many years back they're firing this bullet. Right. But they don't because the second they say it's going to be, oh, yeah, this happened 13 years ago. The audience is going to know something's going to happen to their 11 year old daughter. Yeah, exactly. So so they kind of they kind of cheat a little bit in a way that I was like, wait a second. How far did the bullet? That was so dumb. But then. But like, I guess it's actually a little bit of a shell game. Like that's movie magic where it's like, it doesn't make sense, but you're already on to the next thing. Yeah. By yeah. the time I realized how far that bullock went back in time, I was in a new, deliciously uh, oh. intense uh, existential dread situation, which is they show up and their kid is not their kid and they still have to be the kid's parents. That's fucking great. The, 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 the sequence where... And, and and Judy Greer does such an amazing job acting this with like little to no dialogue where she she's feeling good and she comes home and the house looks different and she starts to get creeped out and she's looking for Riley and she goes into Riley's room and uh, and again Riley who is this like physics geek like like total stem kid she goes into riley's bedroom and it's all like dragons and D shit and she has a meltdown and then i had a meltdown because <laughs> i was like oh no riley turned into me <laughs> um uh, and then, so they think Riley is at a, uh, a at a meet uh, for her, uh, for her rocket team, but of course right. Riley is no longer the Riley they no. remember. Right, Riley has turned into dun 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 a theater kid. Oh my god! Ah. Um, <laughs> so that and then that they are still working out like. You see it on their face. The acting in this movie is so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Judy Greer and Eddie uh, Gathedji, who I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing your name and I apologize. Uh, they are both so good. And you see like the years and the years and the years play out on their faces. Yeah. And they really, it's like that. It's like they, you see on their faces, they not only realize how far out to see they are. Uh-huh. They realize that they're only, they're never getting back. And it's like, right. they're like, not only did we miss 10 years of history with a human being that we are responsible for. Yeah. Like we also are responsible for the next 50 years of that human being's history. And like, that is just like so intense to all come at once in this. Like it's, it's the thing where it's like, I still say, Oh yeah, Aporia is good. You should see Aporia, even though I'm like, that's bullshit. (laughs) What what I'm talking about, like the way they decide to use the machine or whatever, because that stuff is so good. And then the way that immediately dovetails into the like sixth existential, uh, perfect existential nightmare image, which is her showing up on stage without knowing her lines. Yeah, yeah, where where her her theater kid Riley is in an actor showcase, and he's he he. Because also Riley's gender is now different. Yes. Um, 
he is playing Hamlet and he has cast Sophie as as Gertrude, the the ultimate uh, betraying mother of literature. And oh, she that- doesn't know her fucking lines. <laughs> and <laughs> ruins her her 11-year-old like stage debut. <laughs> I, w- I will say, I will say, uh, I, I again, I've I've talked trash about the cinema sense mindset of like the oh, why they run up the stairs? I would have just gone out the front door, then the killer wouldn't get me. Yeah, uh, like that sort of way of watching movies is just like not productive, and it's not it's not fair. I will say, I was like. It's Hamlet. You could go like you just pull out your phone. No one's gonna yell at you yeah, if you're yeah. reading the lines off your phone. <laughs> you're but not in obviously, the class. Like, obviously, your entire mind is on fire with existential yeah. panic. Maybe oh, you God. forget that like which Shakespeare plays are in the public domain or whatever. Yeah. Or also, I mean, also Hamlet's like really fucking long. So yeah. like, which scene is it? <laughs> right. 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 It, it's, it's it was a silly thought, but it yeah. was. But it, well, well, because because there is there is that moment right before they go on stage where she's like, "Where's the script?" And 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 Riley's like, "We've done this a thousand times," and then just like goes out to yeah. the stage and, and just the look on her face and oh my god and and that being a metaphor for what she feels like when they change the past and they yeah. step into the present in oh, someone yeah. else's body like yeah. that is her getting finding out she's on hospice care yeah like is, yeah. that is like you are on stage you don't have your lines that's a that's like a that's that is like just one of those pure elemental nightmares like showing yep. up at school without wearing clothes mm-hmm. like I definitely had nightmares about like I'm on stage and I have a guitar and it's this massive stadium and they're all cheering for me and yeah. I realize that I can't play guitar and I don't know what song we're about to sing. Yeah. Oh, it, it kind of made me think of the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the 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 monster of the week is 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 the 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 character's nightmares are coming to life and Willow's nightmare is that she has to sing an aria on a stage and she doesn't know the song. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is it is just just like the most like I mean, it's not it's not primal because it's like it's theater, but so it, it it is like like such a relatable moment of dread. Um, yeah, yeah, really, really excellent job of just hitting home exactly how awful of a situation these characters are finding themselves in. Also, like, really dark choice to be like. By the way, when Riley's a boy. Riley really connects with his mother and, yeah. and, and kind of ignores his dad. Yeah. And like, you see the jealousy on Malcolm's face. Yeah. Like you see that, like Malcolm is like really like, well, that's not my kid though. Like the, Malcolm is like, I mean, yeah. obviously that's not like Malcolm is, is an absent father who would abandon a child, mm-hmm. but that's like his first instinct is like, this is such a fundamental severing of my understanding of what it is to be a parent yeah. that I am just like, I don't even recognize what my job is here anymore because yeah. I don't have a kid looking at me with adoring eyes. There's literally a moment in this movie where Riley turns to another little girl. This is before the change. Yeah. Uh, Riley turns to another little girl and goes, my dad's the best. <laughs> and it's like, it's so fucking corny. But yeah. It's like, ah, you're also 11 year olds. You're so fucking corny sometimes. Yeah. Um, but like the, 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 the thing this movie uh, sort of posits uh, on a, on a sort of metaphysical scale is that there will always be a parent who loves the child more than the other parent. <laughs> and like, yeah. And, and like, that is the sort of thing this movie does throughout. That is like, it takes these, really standard scenarios, which is like, it's a story about grief. Someone's spouse dies and they don't know how to mm-hmm. maintain. And then it find it constantly in correcting problems. It actually exposes the deeper 
stuff that's yeah. going on that's like a little more thorny and complicated and interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, if this movie, if this movie was more on the nose, there would be a scene where Riley would probably yell at Sophie, I wish you died instead of dad. It yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. do that, but it, it definitely um, lets you know that that is the dynamic without having to say it, which chef kiss for the, for the screenwriter. Yeah. I, and I, and I will say um, as, as someone who, you know, has, doesn't have children, has never wanted children, yeah. um, has had made that lifestyle choice basically as soon as I started to ovulate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, usually when it's, when, when a character makes a tough decision and they're like, it's for my child, I'm just like, oh, oh okay, it just feels, it, it doesn't feel, it feels, it doesn't feel it, wrong, but it feels alienating, you know? But, but for this movie, I was like, okay, I, I can see why, why they're making this choice of like, of like, okay, we need to rectify this because not only have we lost the child that we know but we're gonna fucking ruin the life of the child that we don't know right there there's like a, there's an amazing moment where she's uh where riley after after uh sophie has ruined his sort of theatrical showcase yeah. he's upset he runs home runs into his room and sophie is outside of his bedroom door and she's trying to say like i'll make it up to you we can and then she starts listing like a dozen different things they can do uh-huh. and judy greer has this fucking incredible moment where like on her face as she's like just tossing off things that a mom and a son can do together yeah she realizes she has no idea who's on the other side of that door yeah. and it's like are you a kid who likes ice cream or arcades <laughs> yeah, or yeah. movies or the part? Like you if, see if this, was like a- <laughs> you like she was panicking before, but like yeah. the reality of how fucked she is like yeah. sinks in in that moment. Yeah. So good, absolutely. It is. It is just this moment of I don't know what this kid likes, and also just completely failing to. Um, to grasp the situation, but also grasping that you cannot grasp it. Um, yeah, that 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 was another moment where where my heart just broke. Um, I I figured that this would be a movie where we wouldn't know exactly what happens when sure. they when they do make the decision to um, basically the, the decision that they make to um, to kill the man who betrayed Jabir's family um, so that he can presumably they hope they have faith can, that he can be reunited with them in his home country and that every, everything that they have uh, screwed up um, um, s- since the movie started will be reset. Because the reason that machine exists is because Jabir wants to have his family back. Yeah. He wants to save them. Yeah. The, yeah. the idea of saving them is, is sort of more important to him than revenge. He right. doesn't feel like a revenge. And if he, and if he never, and if he had never moved to Los Angeles, he wouldn't have met Mal and Sophie. Right. And they, and they, and him and Mal would not have built the time machine yeah. together. So the yeah. idea is like, we're undoing everything by undoing the invention of yeah. the machine to begin with. Now, again, it's like cinema sends it. That's a time paradox. You, that if you undo that, then the bullet doesn't go back in time in the first place to stop the guy. Yeah. Whatever, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the The important thing is is that there's a really beautiful bittersweet moment where they oh realize that they're sacrificing their friendship. Yeah. 
<laughs> Jabir and uh, Malcolm are so cute. Oh my god, they really are. They they have such a sweet relationship. There there's a moment where um where, where they're working on the machine together, and Jabir is sort of like dozing off, and he kind of has his head on Mal's shoulder while Mal is like is is like is like adjusting something with a wrench, and it's such a sweet moment. Usually, I. Um, usually I get a little frustrated with the trope of like the, the, the outsider with no family who is the one who sacrifices himself because if you don't have a family, you have nothing to live for. Right, right. Um, usually I roll my eyes at that, but, but the moment of them saying goodbye and realizing like, you, you know, well, it's we actually them sacrificing for Jabir because the understanding yeah. was always like, I can't actually kill the man who betrayed my family because then Malcolm may die. Right. And so it was just an understanding that I'm, that of the three of us in this room who are making these decisions on how to use this machine, like Malcolm not living anymore is not an, uh, a contingency that is worth considering. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's all, and all of this time, Jabir has been like, to the extent that now my I'm like I'm leaving my family dead. Like you yeah. lost a husband, I yeah. lost a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. He's basically saying like like you are my family now. So this whole this whole movie is Jabir sacrificing for them, yeah. and it really is the flip of that, where it's them saying we're gonna roll the dice. Maybe Malcolm walks across the street and gets killed by a drunk driver. Yeah. If if you never invent that machine, or maybe his life and the rhythms of it have sufficiently changed. Yeah. Yeah. That that he does live. We're just gonna have to wait and see. But we're gonna. But the thing we do know, because we know that this, we have proven this machine works the way and as intended. Yeah. Is that you are gonna be back with your family. And un, and they will not have been betrayed by this man. Yeah, the, the the exchange that really got to me is Sophie says, "We'll miss you," and Jabir says, "You won't remember me." And oh god, that just really hit me so hard. Because Jabir will remember them. Yes. Because because yeah. he's the one operating the machine. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, so it, it, yeah, it, that was just like another beautiful heart wrenching moment in in this movie, which was. Yeah. Um, and then, but then the, the, the button that you get, because I mean, I, I was, as I said, I was expecting that you wouldn't, that, that like we would not get the satisfaction of, um, of the movie explicitly telling us um, what the effect is of Jabir using the machine for the last time. And we don't get to know that. But what we do get to see is that Sophie comes home and she opens the door of her home and she's a big smile on her face. And that is the last image. And I felt like that was such a great way to put a button on the story because it's like, you, you don't know the only, the only effect that you know from their decisions is that she's happy. Mm -hmm. She's happy with her home life. She has a reason to smile when she walks in, in the door of her house. And that felt so satisfying to me because I've definitely seen sci-fi before where there's like a cut before you, you get to know exactly what the weird time stuff was building towards. And you're just like, what yeah, yeah. Okay, I it's guess not, it's not <laughs> quite the like little ooh, we yeah. teased you with ambiguity yeah. sort of a thing. Like it is actually making a decision about the outcome without telling you all the details. Yeah. My the thing that really moved me uh, in the film it w happened three minutes earlier, uh -huh. which is when they are sort of they walk out of uh, Jabir's place uh -huh. and they sort of 
realize they have already built this like uh, lavish dream vacation for themselves where they went to the Grand Canyon together. And oh, they yeah. Did this, they yeah. have this whole like beautiful thing. And it is they're like, I, this might be the last moments we ever spend together. Yeah. So let's let's have just like one last like wonderful memory mm-hmm. um, to the and that before we have none of these memories at all. Yeah. And, um, and that is that is fulfilling the the first scene in the movie where Sophie is telling Mal that the most beautiful thing she's ever seen is the Grand Canyon. Right. And he says, oh, I've never been. So they have all of that. But the thing about like preparing yourself for death, which is essentially in some way they are doing, mm-hmm. um, it, in in the realm of poetics, they are yeah. they are basically essentially preparing to die. Yeah. Um, uh, is that like then at the end you still have to die, and then like they, they start panicking a little bit yeah. when they're like they literally don't know they I guess they didn't work it out like at exactly this time I'm going to pull the thing. They don't know if they're going to be able to get out all they want to say and they're like, they're kind of panicking and they're like, sort of really uh, like, I I just love you so much. I'm so like, like, I'm just so happy. You were the best thing ever happened to me. And, and it is just like a really, really good expression of the actual thing that everybody faces, which is, I I don't know if I'm going to be a lot, you know, like I yeah. don't know when the last time I'm going to see you is, you yeah. know, like I yeah. don't know when the yeah. last time I see my parents is going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like you, uh, that like feeling of like, I have to get it in now because yeah. the future is such a, a scary mystery to me. Yeah. And the, the specific cut it does where she's in the middle of saying, I love you. And it's a close up of her face. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts just a hard cut. You don't, you, you hear like the beginning of the L like consonant. Yeah. And then it cuts to a wide shot of that same street corner. They're no longer there. Oh because yeah. Because yeah, time that, has changed yeah. and, and they're just, their whole lives have changed. Yeah. So, that was so a really they no beautiful, longer end up on that. It was a beautiful edit. It was perfect. Um, very, very powerful. Uh, that would, that to me was like, that is the final moment of the movie. And then when I was expecting it to end there too. Yeah. I think, I, I honestly, I think, like, that's maybe a little too brutal. Like, that's, it's just, it's, like, too much of a fucking punch. This is a yeah. movie that loves its characters too much to do that. So yeah, it's like, you're right. okay, no, we didn't all die in a fire. They, she, she has a job. She's in LA. Yeah. You know, she's smiling. Like, we're not going to spoon feed you every little bit of thing. Or not going to, it's mm-hmm. not going to be the end of War of, uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. Or it's like, and then the people that you thought died, they didn't die. They're all here too. <laughs> Yay, everything's all better, and it's 100% better, and we see it because because Yanis Kaminsky's sun, sh- sun rays are coming in. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not going that hard, but it is definitely, like, leaving you on a bit of a hopeful note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the And there is a bit of a, a montage where there, um, there are shots of the settings around their neighborhood, but the characters are not in that, and it made me think a bit of the end of Before Sunrise. Oh. Um, where... Uh, you know, you you have these these two characters who have a a brief, beautiful relationship that just lasts one night in Vienna, and then um, before the end of the movie, as they separate, you just see the the places in Vienna where they were, but they're not there anymore, and the sun's coming up. Um, so I, I don't know if that was a specific call to Before Sunrise, but um, it it did have the same kind of energy to it. Yeah, there's. If I had to get like really galaxy brained about uh-huh. like what this movie is about, like super big macro view, mm-hmm. I think this movie is about living in the first world and like all of the things that have built your comfort. If you actually mm. start tracking back into the things that have made your life like comfortable and easy yeah. and you start investigating, you are going to like 
pick at that and then you are going to see that it came at a horrible cost somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's like they have this like perfect happy sunny marriage when she brings Malcolm back but she can't not pick at it and see yeah. what it what the other results were. Yeah. And it's like if we were to do that with our phones if we were to do that with you know like Ooh, transit yeah. you know like every everything. Our, our modern lives come at a horrible cost to people in other places right. and and in the past. But, but there, that's a, that is an invisible cost. Yeah. If we don't pick and look at it. Right. Um, and I do think like some of the way that Jared Moshe is interested in how this like this isn't sunny L.A. This isn't like movie producer L.A. This isn't this is this isn't like Silver Lake, like mm-hmm. cool L.A. Yeah. This is just like really work a day kind of neighborhoods and the way these people come together mm-hmm. um, and the way people's lives intersect with each other. I believe he said it's the neighborhood that he lives in. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. I think um, I think this is like he shot in on round locations that he was very familiar with. Yeah, um, like that to me, it sort of ties into that larger thing the idea of like this is a movie about primarily about three people but like his eye never completely seeds the world around them right um and i think that's true of his westerns as well less Mm -hmm. burden of a dead man is a very very intimate that's like almost a theatrical play um but like i think uh the ballad of lefty brown is like a movie that is sort of interested in that as well in the tradition of like westerns that are interested in sort of the quote unquote revisionist Western of like the myth of the West as built by the genre. Mm-hmm. What were the actual costs behind it? The Sam Peckinpah era right. of the Western is very much the, uh, what I thought of when I saw like Ballad of Lefty Brown. So it does all feel like of a piece um, in a way that uh, I, I found interesting. I mean, both, both in terms of the the script and the, the visual aspects of the movie, it's very human. It's very humanizing, um, mm-hmm. which is, um, as we said before, um, n- not something that you can always strike an easy balance with when it comes to a movie that's also very uh, cerebral. Right, right. And I, and I do think like this is a movie that is human at the expense of being cerebral sure. in some aspects. Sure. Like, I do think these are choices made to be like, we are not going to be primer. We are going to be yeah. a different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and if I was like, and if I was like projecting like my absolute platonic ideal of the balance of those things, I would be like, I wish this was a little more intellectual or whatever, but mm-hmm. I do like, I mean, recently I watched this uh, movie uh, from England called time crimes Mm-hmm. that is very much a time loop movie that is like, oh, that thing that seemed inexplicable at the start is actually this and that and that and that. And, that. and like at the center of it is a, is like characters that you don't really know very well and don't really care yeah. much about. And yeah. it's and there's like the thing that is supposed to land as a gut punch is only like, oh boy, that's really bleak. But I, it didn't ha- at least it didn't happen to someone I really cared about. Yeah. And this <laughs> is a, and I do appreciate that this instead is a movie that is like no 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 this is about these people. We are going to make you live with these people. That's how I felt about Inception yeah. where I was like am I supposed to be sad because they're attractive? Like I was very puzzled. <laughs> <laughs> um but but yeah um it 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 often feels like um, like it has to be one or the other, but um, this movie feels very much like, as I said before, like after Yang, uh, kind of feels like her, where you know you you can have these um, th- both uh, both these scenarios that have you wondering about 
your own view of the universe and your own view of of the big questions, but also um, connecting to characters. I, I love a good balance. I love a good needle thread. Yeah, you know, and, and and especially when it is like it's a it's a low budget movie. Yeah, and it's like very intimately scaled. And yeah. like I do, I do like that they called their that they called their shots correctly in terms of yeah. like like what can we achieve here? What can't we achieve mm-hmm. here? And mm-hmm. it's like the stuff we can achieve. Like let's not even try to like depict what is the actual physical effect of having a subatomic particle fired at your head because they're doing like coordinates. I'm assuming it's fired from space or something like that. Uh, otherwise they'd be having to do like artillery, like arch rangers or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and I'm and it's like, they never show like the aftermath of someone's head blown up or no, like, or like no. a big crater or anything like mm-hmm. that. They are like totally disinterested I in love, so much of that sci-fi I have, I have stuff. The, the one, the one sci-fi element is the machine and I love the design oh, of it. Oh, it's really cool. It's, it. yeah. it's, it's ominous and it's also janky. Oh, like, it's it junky is, as hell. Yeah, yeah. It is definitely the kind of thing that you would see in like, like, like a physics nuts spare bedroom. Right. Um, Yeah. That that is the, the the most appealing kind of time machine story is like you go into some Wisconsin uh, high school teacher's basement and he's like, by the way, I built a time machine. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for and sure. You're, and like some of the jumper cables still have like Home Depot branding on them. I haven't seen I haven't seen Primer in a really long time, but if I remember correctly, the the time machine is literally a cardboard box. The time machine is literally a cardboard box that is like filled with a gas. I love it. It's that it's a very good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, the, the more, um, the more you can get out of a very simple design that would otherwise be overlooked is one of my favorite things yeah. when it when it comes to like low budget genre movies. Right, right. You're not you're not necessarily into H.G. Wells steampunk, The Time Machine. Not so much. That w- that was more like directly post college Reg. That okay. was a different time. <laughs> that was the mid aughts. Now, now, now <laughs> we you... were all a little confused. It was there was a whole it was a whole thing. Now you rub your hands together and you're like, you know who's sexy? Tinkerers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's go to Home Depot, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so I, I think I think we were both really uh, pleasantly surprised and excited. And to because see this, this movie. is ninety six Greer's, and we did talk a lot about it, but like Judy Greer, extremely good dramatic performance oh, from Judy Greer. Oh, really it's worth wonderful. seeing. This is not at all like darkly comedic Judy Greer. No, this is ne- this really to this is no no touch of Arrested Development Judy Greer of this th- I have to say this felt like a really nice pairing with another marriage oh which that's unfortunately true unfortunately yes, yes, yes. no one else yeah. will be able to see because the run the run ended last month but if you um, happen to be if you happen to go to the Steppenwolf in Chicago <laughs> a month ago yeah um, yeah it, it was also that that side of hers that sort of like 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 someone who is um, who is is grieving a loss and is trying to find herself and yeah. is caring for her child and, and is trying to um to to stand her ground in an increasingly difficult world but still very pointedly comedic it is dar- yeah. a darkly comedic play yeah. in a way that this movie is not no and that, no. that to me is the thing that stood out the most is in the dramatic judy greer roles i've seen they tend to be more on the dramedy side they tend to be more on the descendants yeah. side of things i don't know if she has other movies where she 
is like really in a movie this heavy and she is doing yeah. this much of the dramatic ca- yeah. heavy lifting. Like I know, you know, there she's a mom in the key man. She is. Have, a, have she, we talked about the key man? Recently? She's a mom and a wife. <laughs> mm. Oh man. That, that, that hardcover copy of jaws sure looks heavy. So she does have to do some heavy lifting there. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's like, so that was another treat as far as just the realm of this podcast to be like, Oh, like, it's Judy Greer, like serious actor Judy yeah. Greer. We had a joke uh, other segment on the very first episode of this, which is like, which scene of this movie would play? Would they play during the Oscars if she right. got nominated for Best Actress? I believe you called it Judy's Garlands. Judy's Garlands is, was the name of that segment. And that was a joke because uh, Pottersville is stupid. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but Aporia, there are legitimately several scenes where you're like, yeah, that's like an Oscar performance yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's also a very tiny movie that it's like, it's not going to get yeah. on. I'm not saying like, I don't care about that kind of shit anyway. Like awards don't, right. awards don't validate great work. It made, it made the festival circuit. And I have to say, I hope she got some recognition for it. I mean, I mean, obviously because she's on strike, she's not doing um, the, the festival circuit herself right now, but still, I, I hope that she does get some recognition because I mean, this was a real, a, a really top notch performance and the whole cast really, really yeah, brings it. It's, it's the thing, this movie I think because of all of the little parts of the plot that didn't that did not really track for me, like this movie would not work for me if it didn't have so strong a cast. But yeah. it really does, like top to bottom, have a very strong cast yeah. and very strong performances. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's about all we have to say about Aporia. And since uh, we are currently experiencing a linear timeline, it is time for us to move on to the next segment of the podcast, which is the other segment. Yes. Um, so today we have uh, only one other segment that we uh, agreed on together. It's called She's Here, She's Greer. And our question is, if Judy Greer, uh, who is currently on strike as a member of SAG-AFTRA, if she... Uh, went on the picket line uh what would her sign say that you would write for her um so i have a really obvious choice that i'm just going to toss off which is if you if you want to use ai to make movies say goodbye to these and then it's a picture of emmys (laughs) (laughs) okay okay um say goodbye (laughs) to these is like the catchphrase that judy greer has right um the only other thing i really thought of uh that i thought thought would work good uh, as far as being on a sign that Judy Greer is holding, is if she was holding a sign that said, um, I could have made four movies by now. <laughs> They've been on strike 101 days. Judy Greer can get a lot done in 101 days. She could have starred in three movies. She could have done a, a guest voice on an episode of Bob's Burgers or something yeah. and been in a hotel commercial yeah. in yeah. 100 days. That's For the sure. kind of work ethic that Judy Greer has. Yeah, I, I know. She she has merely um, been uh, the 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 protagonist in a full run of a Steppenwolf uh uh, play and um, I, I also noticed that she did some modeling for Big Bud Press, which is a clothing line that I really like. So I was like, "Oh, cool! Well, look, look who finds himself in some stylish unisex duds. It's Judy Greer." <laughs> <laughs> I was also starting to think along the lines of like a, a Judy Greer catchphrase. My first thought was in Archer, uh, her character Cheryl's catchphrase is to yell, you're not my supervisor when anyone tries to give okay. her any flack. So I was trying to think what you are my supervisor, but I'm on strike. Or, it, it got, t- I, I, I shelved it right away. It, it was too pithy. much. It has to be. Yeah. So what I came up with was, 
America's best friend, AMPTP's worst nightmare. Love it. That's great. <laughs> I don't, I you know, I don't think she's the brick throwing type. That seems like like is, like for a not bit more correct, of a but yeah yeah maybe more of like a like a like an Adam Conover approach to the strike. Yeah. But you know she has said many times that she is America's best friend. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to see her put herself out there as AMPTP's worst nightmare. Um, so yeah, um, and and if she's out there on the picket line, um, stay hydrated, Judy. We love you, and we we hope that uh, you and your colleagues get a fair shake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now we come to the last segment of the podcast, which is judalization. So when we see movies, we don't rank them alphabetically. We don't rank them by release date. We don't rank them by their Rotten Tomatoes percentage, we rank them by how well did this movie utilize the talents of Judy Greer. Uh, right now, we have 11 films on the list. Uh, at the top, we have Addicted to Fresno. And way down at the bottom, we have In Memory of My Father. Um, so this will be the 12th movie on the list. And Patrick, where do you think Aporia ranks in terms of judilization? So I voiced my concern before that judilization will turn into where does Judy Greer have the most screen time? Yeah. And that all of the ones where she's the lead will automatically be at the top. Yeah, right. Yeah, right now, um, number one is Addicted to Fresno, where she's the lead, and number two is Good Boy, where she's also the lead. So, and I have to say, Aporia belongs towards the top. Yeah, absolutely. However, I will say, this movie is better than Addicted to Fresno, and better than Good Boy. Mm -hmm. But when I look in ter pure terms of judilization, right. how well does this utilize the unique talents of Judy Greer? How well does this utilize the unique talents of Judy Greer? I have to say that this movie doesn't get all of Judy. It doesn't need all of Judy. Right. It's not lacking right. some angle of Judy, but it also is not fully utilizing everything Judy Greer can bring to a project. I agree. She it, does an amazing job. So that's one of the things she can do is just be a really fucking good actor. Right. But there is just a little something very particular that she brings to a role in something like Good Boy or Addicted to Fresno that is that she cannot bring to a movie such as Aporia. I'm going to say this is above Good Boy but below Addicted to Fresno. Okay, you know, I was thinking along the same lines of, as you. I was looking at this, I was looking at the list and I was saying to myself, this Aporia gives Judy Greer so much to do. You see how she can be tender and compassionate. Um, you, you can see how she can, um, you know, stand up for what she believes in, how she can, you know, be someone who's a lover, um, but you, you don't get the humor. Um, so I, I agree with you that as, as fantastic as she is in it, in terms of judilization, it's not number one with a bullet. Right. Where um, would you put it? So we have Addicted to Fresno, Good Boy, and then number three is The Wedding Planner. Yes. Um, which is sort of the, the flip side of Aporia, where she is quirky and funny and weird and energetic, but there is, there, there's not a, a dramatic second in that movie. No. It, it is, it is and, light and, and, and frothy. And also very notably, like, and two-dimensional. The, yes. the character of Penny in yeah. The Wedding Planner, who I yeah. never forget her name because I love her so much. She loves gumballs. <laughs> 
Penny is a two-dimensional yeah, sketch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, the whole that whole movie is like like a piece of cotton candy. It's it's sweet. It's light. It's airless. Um, not airless. It's sweet. It's it's light. It's weightless. There you go. Um, <laughs> I think that Aporia belongs at number three above the wedding planner because you get more range from her. You you get more substance from her, but. I, I just I just don't think that um, it utilizes her talents quite as well as either Good Boy or Addicted to Fresno. I, I think she is so great in Good Boy because she is wearing this mask of like, you know, everything's okay and I'm a hashtag girl boss, you know, and I have this cute little dog and I'm just I'm just out there living my hashtag girl boss life. But but also she has these unchecked anger issues and she is really at at the end of her rope letting other people take advantage of her and she's, you know, dragging bodies out into the desert to 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 bury them. So I I kind of feel like um you know with good boy you you get that that dichotomy um and and you get that that dark humor uh that that she brings to life so so wonderfully. So I would say at number 3 under good boy above wedding planner. You have convinced me. I I have to say I put it above good boy. That was in part uh bet hedging. Because I thought, I thought for sure this was going to be you pushing for this to be number one. And I'm glad oh. we were on the same page. Um, I, I think you're correct. I think, I think Good Boy is a better utilization. Right. Uh, even if m- the performance in Aporia is probably the greater performance. Sure, sure. Yeah, if, if we're thinking awards show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, yeah. if, if we're going down that lane probably Aporia is better. But just in terms of, I mean, well, what we think about here is judalization. That's, That's what's right. on our mind 24 right. hours a day, seven days a week. Judalization. <laughs> it's unhealthy. <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, well-judalized, well-written, well-acted, well-directed. Go see Aporia. Our next episode, uh, which will be coming out in September, will uh, hopefully... <laughs> <laughs> unless lightning strikes again our next episode when is eric larue coming out <laughs> yeah, yeah good question um, <laughs> our next episode uh will be grandma which is a 2015 dramedy starring lily tomlin um but as we've been discussing for the last two hours who knows what the future holds that's true <laughs> 96 Greers is part of the now playing network check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net follow us on mastodon at 96 greers at laserdisc.party because fuck x <laughs> follow reg on letterbox at panda bear shape where you can also see the updated list of utilization you can email us at 96greers at proton.me until next time i'm reg and i'm patrick and, and say goodbye, goodbye to these, these.